So as Jesse alluded to, we're going to look at Peter's denial this morning. And, and when we look at Peter's denial, it's kind of like watching a car crash. Like there is nothing you can do but sit and watch. But you know it's coming. All the signs are there. The overconfidence, the negligence, the impetuousness, and the brashness as Jesse brought up. Uh, it's amazing how many times in, in ministry, just providentially, we did not plan that we'd be starting First Peter um, when we got to Peter's denial. But Wednesday's Bible study setup was great for this. Uh, Jesse talked about Peter's brashness and uh, his impetuousness and described them as um, speaking before thinking and acting before thinking. Oh, that, was, that was really helpful. But anyways, this is, this is Peter in this kind of full-speed car knowing that he can't keep up that level of confidence in himself. Uh, and his failing is to such a degree that it is in all four Gospels, one of the very few events in all four Gospels. It is a failing of the highest degree. And so um, this is not something that we are unfamiliar with in our day. It seems like fairly, fairly regularly we see the great fall of some Christian leader that is lifted up. Very public, very shameful. Um, we've seen church leaders crash in a, in a variety of ways. Some implode, some fall, some are forced to resign in shame. Uh, most of them it revolves around women. Um, some have even gone as far as to deny Christ and to deny the faith. Very public Christians who a lot of people look to for leadership and for example. And probably one of the most public and, and right now the most talked about is if, if you have, if you listen to podcasts at all, you've probably heard or seen the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Um, and so for some of you who are younger in the faith and younger in the church, don't realize how, how much of an earthquake th this was that, that rippled through the, the church landscape. So the podcast is very good, and I'll say that with a, with, with a caveat. Um, Every podcast, they, they have their own little agenda. You start to see it as it, as it develops. Um, and so listen to it with, with that in mind. And not everything is appropriate for children or adults for that matter. Um, but there's a lot of great examples in this, positive and negative. Because as in many ministries, the, the desire started out well. There was this, this zeal for the gospel and this zeal for, uh, for transformation and then arrogance and pride sets in. And probably one of the most uh, convicting and damning statements in one of the later episodes, one of the people on staff says about the senior pastor that it became more about Mark than it was about Jesus. And um, that should be a wake-up call for us. And um, you know, it's a very compelling listen. But... There is a danger in looking to larger-than-life church leaders uh, and basing our faith and our trust and our example on them, yours truly included. Um, not to say them larger-than-life, but any, any leader. You know, you know what I mean. Um, and I think what resonates with many people is that not that only people were affected by this church, but many of us in here have been a part of churches where we've seen this happen. Many of us have seen leaders who we look up to and thought were impenetrable fall in a very public way, and how much that has rocked and, and, and affected us. Uh, There's a conversation that I have with a lot of you. I've been in several churches where that's, that's happened. Some of you have too. Some people, it causes them to 
to run and doubt the Lord and say, if, if this person can fall, I have no hope. And there you don't understand the gospel. But for many of us, when I saw those things, it was a conviction to lean into the Lord and not to put my, my trust in, in men. And so that's one of the big examples that we uh, see here. So from the podcast or from our, our text, negative examples are good for us to learn. Paul tells us that they're here for our instruction. So we, 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 we take the sins of others and we learn from them and we look to the righteousness of Christ. And there's much we can learn in humility. So that's what we're going to uh, do in our text this morning. We're going to walk through Peter and through Peter's eyes, use him as a lens, or, or through Peter's actions, use him as a lens to examine ourselves. So I'm going to read a small section and um, we're going to look at a brief discovery of him being revealed to the servant girl and to the, in the first couple verses. The bulk of our text is going to be in the denial in uh, 68 through 71, and then the, the climax when he's uh, broken and dejected at the very end. But we are going to spend some time in conclusion on Peter as an, an apostle, a figure in Scripture, and then uh, close with some application. So that's where we're going this morning. I'm picking up in Mark 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it and said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again came to Peter and said, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you use the words inspired by your spirit this morning to teach us, to instruct us, to convict us. Lord, any place where we are raising ourselves high, may we be brought low and our paths made straight. Or any places where we are holding ourselves so low that we do not look to Christ, may we be brought up and our paths made straight. Lord, may the gospel convict us and encourage us. May the example and the extreme in Peter be used for our instruction and our building up. May you be glorified by every word that comes out of my mouth this morning. May it not be mine, but yours. May your people walk away from here ministered to by your spirit. And may anyone with the sound of my voice who is trusting in themselves, may they weep bitterly like Peter and cry out to you in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So although throughout the evening the denials were spread out, uh, and Luke and John kind of give us more of a picture of that, 
We mentioned this last week that Mark employs his sandwich technique again. You've got the first piece of bread that we looked at last week in 53 and 54 that sets up where Peter is while Jesus' trial is going on. And so you've got the, the meat, everything that, that Mark is pointing us to in the middle, Jesus' trial, and then you get the other piece of bread, the other end, where Peter is now. And that's where we are. We're on the other side of the sandwich. So before we get to our text, we've got to look at what Mark has set up already. So going back to verse 54 of chapter 14, let's look at some things to consider here. Um, so right out of the bat, verse 54, and Peter followed him. For all the grief we give Peter, it is easy to poke fun at Peter and, and, and use him as um, sermon illustrations and, and, and anecdotes, and I'm going to keep doing it, but let's not, let's not forget either that he loves his Savior so much that he followed him. He knew that it would mean danger for him. He wanted to be close to him, and in his imperfect way, he seeks after Jesus. This is helpful and necessary for us to remember. But his bravery has its limits because he followed him at a distance. That detail is not by accident. Peter followed him at a distance. All right, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. If everyone else denies you, I will die, but I'll be right over here. That's, that's kind of what we're seeing with Peter, and that's what Mark brings up. And so we talked about the courtyard scene in the, the outer terrace of Caiaphas' house where they would have fire pits for the guards to keep warm. They would have cells on the slope of the temple mount. So there were, there were cells underneath. So Jesus is, or excuse me, so Peter is outside, um, but he's also down. And so we only have a few people mentioned but this has to be quite a scene. And remember, Judas came with the, the temple guards, so the, the priestly guards and Roman guards, and apparently servant girls in the house. Most of the Sanhedrin, there's 71 in total, so a majority of the Sanhedrin are there, and any onlookers. So there's realistically a couple hundred people here, and there's a lot going on. So it's a bit of a chaotic and, and, and ruckus kind of scene. And so we shouldn't forget that it's, just, it's not just Peter and a couple soldiers around a fire. There's a lot going on here. And Peter's kind of thinking he can blend in with all of, of what's going on. But the irony with Peter sitting with the soldiers is that he had just cut one of their ears off. And now he's sitting next to them at, at the fire. You got to love Peter for that. Not many people would, would attack someone and then try to hide next to them in front of a fire. This is Peter. The other thing that is present in the Greek that is not present in the English, the word used here where it says he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. It's not fire, it's light. He's warming himself at the light. Mark is setting up here that Peter is just asking to be discovered because he is getting his warmth but he is also revealing his, his face. They're sitting there as the, the, the light from the flames are flickering off his face. So all those things are helpful as we get into our text this morning. But before we do, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to consider this as we go through this text. How closely are you following Jesus? This is not just a philosophical question. 
This is a practical question. How closely are you following Jesus? Are you at a safe enough distance where you can kind of be associated with him, but maybe people won't recognize you? Are you trying to follow Jesus, but so far behind him that you care more about your own comfort than being discovered? Or are you following Jesus so closely that people can't help but see you are one of his? This is an important question for us because we live in a culture where you can kind of follow Jesus. I've talked to so many people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But no one would know unless they said something. Or by the fruit of their, their life, by the way that they use their, their, their time, many of you are content with following, with following Jesus for two hours on Sunday morning. And you have nothing to do with him the rest of the week. How closely are you following Jesus? Because in that, how different are you than Peter? And so let's... We are going to poke at Peter here, but we're definitely going to poke at ourselves and, and make sure we are holding ourselves to the same standard we hold Peter to. So I want to, before we get into our text, I want to contrast the two trials. Inside, this is how Mark sets this up beautifully. Inside, there is a trial for Jesus' life, verses 53 through 65. Outside, at the same time, there's a trial for Peter's heart. Inside, many witnesses are brought, false witnesses. And Jesus declares boldly who he is. Outside, many witnesses are brought, true witnesses. And, G and Peter denies what they say. Mark is beautifully setting up the two. And this is included because it is to draw this stark contrast between the faithfulness of Christ and the unfaithfulness of the most vocal of his supporters. So that irony should not be lost on us. All right, let's pick up in verse 66. And as Peter was below, remember Temple Mount, below in the courtyard, uh, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. So this is worth noticing before we go any further. This is not a soldier with a sword at Peter's throat. This is not someone threatening death. This is a little girl, a servant girl with no authority. She can't bring any official charge against him. It's a little girl. And this is, should hit close to home because like Peter, it's not the big trials that really, that, that really threaten our faith. It's the little ones, little trials again and again. And if Peter is going to fall under a question, not even an accusation, a question from a little girl, what will happen in the larger trials that are real? And so I want us to think about that for a moment. Be aware of the small leak. Because if you know anything about how water finds its way in, if there is any any small leak, crack, fissure in, in rock, stone, your roof, water will find its way in and it will begin to erode. This is our enemy. Satan doesn't need you to open the door wide open. He needs just a little crack and the water will work through. Uh, I was reminded of this, this this week because my poor neighbor 
right next door to me, uh, paid someone a lot of money to build onto his house. And the contractor did some wise things in uh, covering up his roof with a tarp and nailing the tarp on the top of his roof. Any of you homeowners right now are, are kind of shuddering at the fact of someone putting a nail through your roof. And even with the tarp on top of the nails, they've got all kinds of water leaks in their house, and they're probably going to have to replace their entire roof. Because this guy thought the best way to, to, to um, secure a tarp was with nails. And so now they put a bunch of cracks in, the, in, in my neighbor's roof. And I really feel for him. But this is such a great analogy. that It's a tiny little nail hole. And if you've seen roofing nails, they, they even have like a, a protective covering underneath them. But water still gets in. The, the little crack in the foundation can cause all kinds of damage. And what has to happen for Peter and for us, these cracks must be exposed. Otherwise, the foundation will not be sure. Peter has to have this exposed. Has to show the weakness of the foundation, which is indeed himself, before he can faithfully follow Christ. And so, Peter is going to, this, this crack that begins very small is going to begin to widen and widen. Verse 67, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said. Now, another thing we don't get in the English here. There are two Greek words here. She sees Peter and then she looks at him. The one is a basic word for sight. The other one is to look intently. So what happens is she catches Peter out of the side of her eye, and the second one, she looks intently at him. She looks in his eyes. She looks at the features of his face. And I'm not from that area, but apparently it was pretty obvious that he was a Galilean by, 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 her, by his look at him, or excuse me, her look at him. You know, maybe she saw him with Jesus at some point, but she's examining his face. And so while he's sitting by this fire, the heat is being turned up because this He's trying to blend in. He's just trying to stay safe. And this little girl is looking him up and down. And so then her words, again, a simple statement. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. Denial number one. This denial number one is emphatic. Saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He is literally playing dumb. There's 100 to 200 people here all because of Jesus. And he's saying, again, two Greek words. One that says, I have no general knowledge. I don't even know what's, what's going on. And the second one, I don't have any experiential knowledge. He's here like, I just saw the commotion and I'm sitting by a fire. I don't even know why you people are here. It's, it's a foolish statement. But he says it in such a way where I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't heard of this Jesus. I've never seen this, this, this Jesus what a far cry from I will die before I deny you. So going on, after he's exposed the first time, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean, he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Why is this important? Why is this mentioned? So Peter's kind of in the inner court now, and then he goes out closer to the gate. What happens? Peter gets exposed, and he makes his way further away from Jesus. He goes closer to the gate. 
This is not just situational movement. There is a connection here between our speech, our heart, and our actions. If you move away from Christ in any of them, the rest will follow. Notice that he denies Jesus and then his body moves further away. He is looking to his own self-survival, doubling down on his denial of his Savior. And we have to be careful of that. Because if you put your body further from Christ, meaning, okay, I can do all these things that, that the world loves and indulge in my flesh, I have had this conversation with so many of you. Why is my devotional life struggling? Why do I not have the words to pray? Why don't I want to read the scriptures? What does the rest of your time look like? Where are you putting your, your, your body or if you wonder why Jesus is not on your lips and then you, and then you struggle to have the words when people ask you about your, your faith, well, if you don't talk about him in regular conversation, if, your name, if his name isn't on your lips, how can you affect, or expect to be a witness? There is a direct connection between our speech, our affections, and our actions. And Peter is showing this, and Mark's showing this, as Peter's movement is away from Jesus. So that's the first denial. So notice, he's further away now. He's at the gate, and the servant girl saw him. She follows him and began again to say for, to the bystanders, this man is one of them. I love that the, the, one of the commentators said, this little girl is like his nagging conscience. Like he tries to get away from Peter, and she, or excuse me, a, a, away from the little girl, Peter does, and she follows him. But not just for her, now she's getting everybody else involved. Anyone's conscious ever does this to them? Like you try to hide your, your, your sin and it reminds you and reminds you and then you feel like everyone's looking at you because of it? And isn't this just the way for us? It's never just one sin, is it? If we indulge in our flesh, it's like Lay's potato chips. You can't just eat one. And you can't. I, I challenge you. But isn't that just the way? We say this to ourselves. We justify it to ourselves. Peter, you can hear it in his mind. I can get away with this once. Whew, I dodged that bullet. That'll never come up again. How many times have you done this? How many times do we do this? Just this one time. Yeah, right. Then I'll be good. I'll never do it again. The reminder that if you indulge sin... If you think you can get away from it, this is how much the Lord loves you. If you are his, he will keep bringing this little servant girl into your life to remind you again and again and again. It is up to you, though, when you will listen and when you repent. We'll get to more of that later. So his second denial comes in verse 70. But again he denied it. Third denial, after a little while, Luke tells us it's an hour later. So there's, there, there's a lot going on here over a longer span of time. And a little while later, the bystander again, bystanders again say to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So certainly you are a Galilean. So there's something that betrays Peter. Maybe it's something in his facial features. Um, to call someone a Galilean is not really a compliment. 
So Nazareth is a small town within Galilee. And we talked about this earlier in the book, but just kind of for, for recap, um, the Sea of Galilee was very important for trade. Uh, there was more fish in that sea than any other freshwater lake in the area, in the region. And so trade would make its way down through the Jordan River. And uh, there's a lot of trade that came through there, but they weren't known for, for, for sophistication. They were highly uneducated. They didn't have any political power. They were kind of like your, your country bumpkins, you know, fishermen. They weren't highly respected. And so when you're called uh, a Galilean, it's not a compliment. And the other thing, too, they, they, had a, they had a reputation for being fighters and troublemakers. So um, not a good thing. But how can they say so certainly, certainly, Truly, in the Greek, you are one of them, for you are Galilean. How? Matthew gives us an indication. Matthew says, your accent betrays you. Mm, everybody, mm, because, because we know that. You can only talk with someone for like a minute or two. Like, this is, that's not from Florida. Or, like, we all know the Wisconsin, Alabama, Texas, Kentucky, they, they, they come out pretty quickly. So it's not long before the country comes out and, and everybody hears Peter and is like, you're not one of these big city sophisticated Jews. You're one of those kind of backwoods, uh, uneducated Jews. And that's what, what I think really betrays Peter. And they, they hear it. Peter, his, his own... Um, you know, his own personality betrays him. Because in verse 70, when it says, again, he denied it, the way that this is written in the original language, it's open-ended. It's not just a word or two. Peter's kind of rambling on, trying to make sense of it. So the more he runs his mouth, the more his accent betrays him. And so Peter's personality is, is working against him here. He can no longer hide. Then comes his third and most Damning denial. Verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. This is the most intense and the most egregious. This word, and we're doing a lot of word studies today because it, it helps. This, this word here for invoke a curse, the verb form of anathema, to bring divine curse on yourself. The same word that Peter uses, or Peter, Paul uses in Galatians 1. If anyone should bring to you a gospel other than the gospel I preach, let him be anathemad. Peter is calling down divine curse, cursing on himself. If he is associated with Jesus, this is serious. And not just that. These are two separate acts. He begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. He invokes anathema on himself and he swears an oath. I will uphold this. I stake my life on it. Wow. And notice how indifferent and cold the rest of the statement is. I do not know this man whom you speak. The servant girl uses the name of Jesus. Peter says, this man, I don't know this man that you speak, of whom you speak. Man, this is meant to drive home how serious this is. Again, remember the contrast. Jesus is inside. 
boldly declaring, I am. I am the son of God. I am the son of man who you will see coming on the clouds of heaven. Peter outside says, I don't know this man. The great contrast, Jesus being in the trial for his very life and Peter outside being on trial for his pride and failing miserably. And as he digs this hole for himself, as the crack in his foundation begins to widen, it's, like, it's almost like it couldn't get any deeper, but it does. Look at verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Another unique word here. This is not the typical word for remember. This is the word for someone bringing to your remembrance. This is to be reminded. The Lord brought him this low and the Holy Spirit reminded him of the words of Christ. The two jobs of the Holy Spirit, to convict of sin and to remind you of the words of Christ. He's doing both here in Peter. Peter is reminded, anyone else ever been there? In the moment where you think you could not get any lower in your own sin and trust of yourself, the words of the Lord come to your mind and, and you are convicted on the spot. This is how the Lord is teaching and breaking Peter down. You will deny me three times. And this is also not by coincidence that he fell asleep three times when he should have been praying. He should have stayed awake. He should have remained with his Savior then instead of falling asleep. Maybe he wouldn't have denied him here. There's all kinds of great lessons there that we can make connections with. But here's where the other Gospels are helpful. Luke includes the detail that should break our heart as we read it because it breaks Peter's. Luke adds the final straw, Luke twenty-two sixteen, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine. We already saw they were spitting on him, mocking him, slapping him, punching him. Jesus' bruised and bloody face locks eyes with Peter. And Peter, for all of his faults, in his, in his guilt, remembers the words of his Savior, and he looks to his Savior. This is key. Peter fell about as low as he could go, but he didn't turn and run. He now, finally, looks to his Savior, and his Savior looks to him. This is a powerful moment. And thankfully, Luke, Luke includes this. For, for us. Even in, his, even in his weakness and his shame, he catches eyes with the Savior. This is powerful. So as I was thinking about this, I had to think about myself. And do we realize that in the midst of our sin, our Savior is looking right at us? We can't hide from him. In our lowest points, when, when we have brought shame to his name, when we have denied him, when our witness has been weakened by our sinful actions, he looks right at us. 
But if you are his, he's been looking at you before the foundation of the world. And he went to the cross looking at your sin. If you are his, he is looking at you right now from his throne of grace. Saying, your sin is covered. Your sin is covered. I bore that. What a great reminder that he knows you. He knows how wicked you are. He knows how weak you are. And he proved how much he loved you by taking your sins to the cross and interceding for you day after day after day, sealing you with his righteousness and his spirit. This may be heartbreaking for Peter at the moment, but this is a joyful encouragement that our Savior sees us in our sin. This is what caused Peter to break down and weep. This word for break down is the Greek equivalent to throw on, to set on, to cast on. He's kind of falling into his, his weeping. His, he is emotionally, physically, mentally broken down. And this is what he needed. He could not be used by the Lord in his, in his self-confidence, in his arrogance. He needed to be completely broken of himself. This is what the Lord does to us. For those of you who have been Christians longer than you can remember, praise God. But there are many of us in this room who know what it feels like to be broken like Peter. Who knows what it feels like to be so confronted with your own sin that you cannot physically stand anymore. Crying out to God because you have no hope in yourself. And this is a beautiful turn in this text. So I don't want you to lose the greater principle. The, the initial lesson here is that Peter's denial that comes from, from self-confidence, and we should certainly be aware of our pride and our arrogance and our self-consciousness and self-confidence and guard against that. But his brokenness that leads to repentance, that leads to faith, that is the greater takeaway. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time because we will fall short. Our actions are not worthy of the name of Christ. But if you are his, your conviction and your repentance is proof that you are his. Um, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So this is kind of transitioning into our conclusion of the text. It'll be up on the screen if you can't get there quickly. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul has this has this beautiful relationship with the, the Corinthian church where he, he, he chastises them from afar yet, yet loves them and encourages them. And the, the tone of the second letter is much different than the tone of the first. But notice how Paul speaks about this. This is 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I said some very hard things to you. I have no second thoughts about that. Though I do regret it, here's his only regret, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. My only regret is that I wasn't hard enough, that your repentance didn't last, or that you were only grieved for a, a little while. But as it is, time has shown that, that there was faithfulness in the Corinthian church. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Praise God for the grief that that leads to repentance. We're not talking about guilt here. 
We're not talking about people who turn their, their, their own sin as a reason to, to feel sorry for themselves. We're talking about true grief, truly being broken over your sin that leads to repentance. For, Paul says, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through, a, through us. Godly grief is good. Many people run from discomfort. Many people run from repentance. Many people don't want to deal with their sin. It is good that you deal with your sin. Because it leads to repentance, and you suffer no loss, you will be better for it. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We are unique in this. There is no religion on the planet that embraces suffering the way we do, that embraces contrition, not for the sake of contrition, this is not self-flagellation where, you, where you, you beat yourself up and that's the end. Repentance always leads to faith. True repentance leads to belief. True repentance is unto salvation and that is a good thing. Praise God for that. That's why the simple gospel message will never grow old. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. We know that the unbelievers need to hear the words repent and believe. And if you are here this morning and you never have, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Be broken like Peter. But believers, we don't remind ourselves often enough that we need to hear those words too. We constantly need to repent, turn from our sin, put our old selves to death and believe. Put on the new self. Live in who Christ has declared you to be and bought you for. Repent, turn from the old man, believe, turn to and put on the new man. And so, if we are honest, those of us who are in Christ, we can identify with Peter. And if you haven't up to this point, you should now. We can identify with being broken over our own sin and our own weakness being reminded of our own depravity, if you understand the holiness of God and you understand how far you are from that, you should be broken. Because every one of us in here has denied our Savior. We have disappointed our Savior. We have offended Him time and time again. And I want you to hear something a little shocking. As a pastor, I'm not worried if you sin. People come to me all the time. There's one thing that, they, that seminary does not prepare you for. People are going to tell you stuff you never wanted to know. But people all the time are like, I don't know if you're going to be able to take what I'm about to tell you. You, you are never going to believe what I just did. And they're often surprised that I don't fall out of my chair. I'm not worried if you sin. We are sinners. That is who we are. That is what we do. Where I am worried is if you are flippant about your sin, if you are not broken about your sin. I will talk to a believer a thousand times about a sin if they are broken and in, 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 in repenting and moving on. But those who minimize or try to deny or downplay their sin, that's when I'm worried. Because if you can make excuses for your sin, if you're not broken by your, your sin, I've got a lot greater concerns for you. Because it is our sin that humbles us and drives us to the cross. One of Spurgeon's famous sayings, I kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Christians, we can kiss the wave, whether it be suffering or our own sin. 
Because if this is battering against me, but it throws me to Jesus, praise God. Amen. Amen. If you are not broken by your own sin, you don't know your own sin. If you have not wept at your own wickedness, you don't know your state. But if you are not built up by the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ, you don't know the gospel. Let me repeat that second part because some of you, the first part's easy. I'm certainly broken over my own sin. I know I'm a wretch. But you don't take comfort in the gospel. If you are not built up by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, you don't know the gospel. Because it is with your sin in full view that he went to the cross. He looked you and your sin in the eye, and I know you. I know how wicked you are. But I love you. And I give myself for you. This is where the gospel is very much for our conviction and for our encouragement. So the first RBC student who we had as a member here before um, most of any RBC student who's here is before your, your time. Some of the members who've been here for a while know what I'm about to say. There's a student who became a member here who was very confident in the word but was also very confident in himself. He attended, he served, he was a hard worker, he excelled in Bible studies, but he also excelled in the things that the world glorifies, drinking and smoking weed and profane music, and he thought he could do both. Uh, It wasn't long, uh, or he was expelled in a very public fashion, and we spent hours and hours and meeting upon meeting of him venting and talking about his frustrations as he complained and blamed others. And I would point him to Christ and he'd continue to go into deeper and deeper darkness. To the point of he would doubt whether he was saved or if he could even be elect or if he ever really truly loved Christ. So, without repenting, he was excommunicated soon after that. He moved back home, and we didn't hear from him for some time. And then I get a random call out of the blue, and he apologized. And uh, he thanked me, told me that he wished he had listened, that the Lord had convicted him, and that now he is following Christ again. And we, as a congregation, rejoiced. Because it is never easy to use church discipline, but it is very loving. And he realized that, and we're still in contact here and there. And I wish I could tell you his life was easy, and he never struggled again, and he's preaching the gospel somewhere. Um, He is still struggling, and he will still struggle. But he will endure by the grace of God. And that is what we praise him for. So this is where we see Peter's story take a turn. So the last thing we see in Mark of Peter, look at chapter 16 in Mark. Because I don't want this to be the lasting image of your mind in, um, in, uh, in this sermon. Because this is not the lasting view in Scripture. Mark chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. 
And he said to them, this is the, the angel who comes, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Notice what is used as a curse word and, a, and an insult is now used of the risen Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Even the messenger of the Lord knows Peter needs this encouragement more than anyone else. Those who the Lord breaks in a, in, in a, in a great way, he also builds up and encourages in a great way. Tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. You were mocked for being a Galilean. That's where you'll see Jesus again. There you will see him just as he told you. This is not the end of Peter's story, obviously. The next time we see him in Acts, he is standing up before the, the saints and telling them or, or directing them to pick the next apostle. The next time we hear from him publicly is in Acts 2. We've covered this several times, but I want you to see this sermon again. We, we've looked here the last few weeks, but look at the sermon in Acts 2 again and look at the, the details. Remember, you got to remember, something really important happens between the end of Mark and Acts 2. What is that? Somebody. Pentecost. Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit. What is the difference? Peter in his own strength before being indwelt with the, with the Holy Spirit. Peter, in the strength of the Spirit, look at Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. This is Peter at the top of his lungs proclaiming the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the power of the Holy Spirit at work within his people. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. The same guy we were just talking about. Just a number of days before is now preaching like this because of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing work that he does in Peter. You know what else is amazing? No one outside of the Gospels mentions Peter's denials. Peter is no longer known for his denials. He is known for being a faithful preacher. Going on, verse 38 of Acts 2. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore... Uh, excuse me, of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now every other sentence, Jesus is coming out of his lips. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The message that is on after repentance and belief, the message that is on Peter's lips is repent and believe. Don't ever get beyond the simple and powerful nature of the gospel. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our, the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. This Peter, who was afraid to speak Jesus' name, is now bearing witness. Save yourselves from this crooked generation so those who received his words were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the power of someone being broken in their flesh and their own strength and being built back up by the Holy Spirit. 
This is a good process. Praise God for this. We see this transition from his brashness to his boldness. And as Jesse mentioned on Wednesday night, the greatest weakness becomes his greatest strength. I want you to know that was Jesse's idea. No plagiarism here. Um, some of you will get that. But. but the Lord uses his personality and redeems it for his purposes. So application, two points of application here, and then we're going to close. Number one, here's the obvious one, the warning against self-confidence. We have to be careful because the world champions self-esteem. Oh, they need to have self-esteem. They need to build themselves up. We see Peter lacked no self-esteem. He esteemed himself very highly, and where did that get him? His love for himself led to a desire to be loved and validated by others. His love for himself led him to people-pleasing. This is what it is. He was under no threat of death. His pride and his arrogance led him to not want to be found out by a little girl and then a bunch of pagans who he should not have cared what they thought about him. Beware of the love of self. Beware of the love of man. If Peter is not above it, neither are we. One more verse in Mark. Mark chapter 8. I would be remiss if I said these words. Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Last week... Jesus told them, the next time you see me, I'm coming in the clouds. I'm coming with power and judgment. I'm coming with the soldiers of heaven. And if you are ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you then. This should be a sobering reminder for every one of us. If you will not take the name of Jesus now, he will not take yours when he returns. And you don't want that. This is the warning. Second application, the greater takeaway here. Peter, his slip-ups, all of his failings are so front and center within the Gospels. But after his regeneration, or after, his, after the Spirit comes upon him and makes him new, they are not remembered. In the Gospels, he is known as a pillar of the church. Or no, excuse me, in, in, the, in Acts and the Epistles, He's a pillar of the church. He's still got some correction uh, that needs to happen along the way. But he is an apostle. He is an elder. He takes his charge from Jesus to shepherd the flock with great seriousness. And this is why we're studying 1 Peter. A book that is full, like Peter's personality, of action and exhortation is a great encouragement to the church. And everything is glorifying Christ. And so... Like Peter, if you are in Christ, your former sins are no, no, no longer remembered. You are not defined according to your own weaknesses and your own failings. Many of you need to hear this. Because this is what the world does. The world defines you by your last mistake. This should not be the way in the church. 
Because if Jesus no longer views us according to our sin, but as our mediator before the Father, covered in his righteousness, how should we view the saints? And we should all raise a mighty amen that that we are defined by the works of Christ and not our own. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. Praise God that we are saved by the God of grace. Because we will sin. We will fall. We will be broken, Lord willing. And when we repent, there is grace upon grace upon grace. Our God is gracious and he is merciful. Here's the lasting thought I want you to have in your minds as we wrap this up. Peter fell for a moment. Christ suffered for a moment. But our God in his mercy and his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you love us in spite of our sin. You didn't look ahead and know who would choose you. You looked ahead and saw wretched harlots and sinners and said, I want them. We praise you that there is no glory we can take from our salvation. That we, like Peter, all sheep have gone astray. Each turned to our own way. But you put your spirit within us. You brought us to new life that we might repent and believe in you. And we praise you for this. Lord, we admit that this is what the world needs. This is the only answer for the world. To be convicted of their sin, to be broken And to cry out for the mercy of God. May we be faithful in your work. Ambassadors of this gospel. This good news that the world needs to hear. That Jesus Christ who was crucified by the hands of lawless men. God raised up. God seated at his right hand. And God gave him all power and glory. And his sacrifice would be the perfect price paid for the remission of sins. That all who cry out to him in faith will be saved. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. And they will be with him in the life everlasting. We praise you for the story of Peter and his brokenness. All the other episodes of brokenness we see in the scriptures and we see in the world around us that we may be reminded that your grace is greater than all of our sin. And in the times when we are broken and we are down on ourselves, and we should be, that the truth of the gospel would be lifted, would would lift us up and encourage us that we are in Christ and in him our sins are remembered no more and we can boldly say and sing, it is well with my soul. Let's sing in response. Amen.